everybody. Uh, thank you to um, the second of our two uh, related presentations today. Uh, and it's going to be with Rapal Bra this time, introducing Lenin's uh, text called One Step Forward, Two Steps Back. Now, this was written very soon after what is to be done. In what is to be done, as we heard from Ella, uh, Lenin outlined what revolutionary work consists of, why it's different than what most people who call themselves left and socialist are actually doing, why it matters, who it should target, how and why. Um, when it came to one step forward, two steps back, Lenin was really looking about at how the party itself needs to organize in order to be an effective fighting force of the working class for socialism. And there's certain principles he established there uh, which were revolutionary in terms of enabling the Russian working class to win its battle for socialism. So very important foundational text for our struggle, very significant right now, as we talked about earlier. So uh, over to Hapal, thank you very much. Thank you, Comrade Chambers. Well, my, my task is made, Sorry. my task is made much easier by the fact that I'm following Ella Rule, who has talked to us about uh, Lenin's What Is To Be Done, the essence of which can be, as she rightly pointed out, summed up by single sentence, without a revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. Those people who are serious about changing this society, not within the pre-parameters of capitalism, but going beyond it and going towards socialism, they need to learn and to master revolutionary theory. And no working class, unless it is headed by a party which is armed with such kind of theory, can ever make a revolution. And that really is the difference around about the time of 1917 between the Bolsheviks on the one hand and all other parties that those days called themselves Marxist. They those days, as Ella has explained, were known by the name of social democratic parties. They all failed because one way or the other, they could not do the revolutionary work in a prop proper way. And so many of these parties were saturated by opportunism. Opportunism is something that is like a cancer in the working class movement where actually people go tantalized by some short-term gains and, and go in that direction and give up the long-term interests of the proletariat. Short-term short um, gains can sometimes look very palpable. You know, you have achieved something, you can show it to people. There are people like us, have been six decades in this movement, at the end of it, if somebody asks us, what have you achieved? And the answer may very well be hardly anything. Yeah? It's our misfortune to be living in an imperialist country in a most reactionary period. And therefore, whatever we have to say sometimes just does not have the desired effect. But it doesn't mean it was the wrong thing to do. Because we regard ourselves as, as a part of a continuum. People have gone before us. We, we are here, and there will be others who will follow it. And I haven't got the slightest doubt, in the words of Nikolai Chernyshevsky, there will be joys in our street, and we will win. How long it takes, I'm not a soothsayer, I'm not clairvoyant enough to say it, but one thing is certain, 
knowing the laws of the development of society and the direction in which it is moving, there is no way out for the masses of people except through socialism and the dictatorship of the proletariat. <laughs> we must not shy away from this expression, dictatorship of the proletariat. A lot of opportunists will tell us, you frighten the workers. You will scare them away from, from, from our work. It's a blood-curdling expression, dictatorship of the proletariat. Who wants a dictatorship? Well, the answer to that question is a very simple one. First of all, it doesn't scare the workers. It scares the bourgeois. Right? The dictatorship of the proletariat cannot be something of a threat to the working class. It's a threat to the bourgeoisie, and quite rightly so. And they understand it more than perhaps sometimes our working class com comrades do. The second thing is to explain to them in very simple terms, every state is an expression of the dictatorship of one class or another, whether it's a slave state, whether it's a feudal state, whether it's a bourgeois state, whether it's a socialist state. The state only exists insofar it is necessary to exist as an instrument in the hands of one class for the suppression of another class. The moment society moves into an area where there are no classes to suppress, there is nothing for the state to do. So a proletarian state is not abolished, it withers away. But the functions of the proletarian revolution, its relationship to the bourgeois state is that the proletarian revolution must smash the bourgeois state. Without smashing it and putting in its place the dictatorship of the proletariat, the working class cannot do anything. It cannot get rid of all the ills of capitalism. The working class needs the dictatorship of the proletariat, A, to prevent the restoration of capitalism, the restoration of the old exploiting classes, and to suppress them. And it will be all the easier to do, because the suppression will now be done by the overwhelming majority against a tiny minority. And by its very nature, you will not require the same force that is required when the state is in the hands of an oppressing minority against the majority because you need a whole paraphernalia to be able to overwhelm the, mass, the masses of people. So we need, 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 need the state, secondly, to build socialism, to create the right conditions over a period of time to go to the final stage of the higher stage, stage of communism. But of course, we cannot even be within striking distance unless we master revolutionary theory, which was the subject of Ella Rule's um, um, present presentation be, before me. But of course, there's another thing needed. Revolutionary theory by itself doesn't take, carry you far. It's very, very important. But the working class needs to organize itself. And the working class cannot organize suddenly all by itself. You know, it wouldn't be the case that one day working class wakes up and says, ah, we need to get rid of capitalism, and why don't we all get rid of them? Had they been able to do that, it would have taken place long while ago. There's plenty of misery in the working class. There's plenty of oppression perpetrated by the ruling exploiting minority on the working class. And yet, they continue to be in power. And this is only because the working class hasn't caught on to the idea that they are superior in numbers, that their case, from a historical point of view, is a moral and a just one. Because on, and, and our idea of morality and justice 
that kind of morality is fine, which actually helps the development of the productive forces, you know, which brings prosperity to people. The bourgeoisie today is alone able to stand in the way of working class reaching its goal of socialism. It has got to be removed, and it can only be removed when the working class wakes up, is armed by a revolutionary theory, and secondly, it is able to build a working class organization which can give them the guidance. And here comes the role of the party. <laughs> so these are the two most indispensable tools that the working class must have. Revolutionary theory, first and foremost, and secondly, a revolutionary organization. Not any organization, not any working class organization, not a trade union organization, not a cultural organization, not a peace organization, not a women's organization, etc., etc., but an organization that organizes the whole of the working class, namely the party of the proletariat. After um, a trend had appeared in Russia, where, as Allah has pointed out, there were people who were saying, all that matters is trade union struggle. Lenin and his comrades had to make, wage a vigorous struggle against that misguided ideology and policy of trade unionism. And Lenin was able to do that by, first of all, establishing an all-Russian newspaper, which was named Iskra, which means spark. And sure enough, it was the spark that put in train a prairie fire the October Revolution, Revolution and everything that has followed, followed, followed since then. And through the columns of the Iskra, for over a three-year period, Lenin and his comrades were able to destroy and discredit credit economism. And by the end of that three-year period, as the history of the CPSUB mentions, to be called an economist was regarded as an insult and an abuse, you know, and nobody wanted to be called an economist. It became a distant memory. And having destroyed the ideology of economism, Lenin and his comrades were able to prepare, and Plekhanov was with, with, with Lenin at that time. And we must never forget, Plekhanov is the founder of Russian Marxism. Yes, he went off the rails later on, but he made a tremendous contribution. And they, they then went on to call the Second Congress of the RSDLP, as it was called, Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. The first Congress had been held a few years earlier in Minsk. If you talk to a Belarusian communist, they are very proud to say, to say that this first Congress that laid the foundations of the Bolshevik Party was held in Minsk. But actually, nothing happened after the first Congress. The groups continued to exist as separate groups. Circle spirit pervaded, and you had to go on to a stage where circle spirit was abolished and it was replaced by a party. And that was to be done at the Second Congress or of the RSDLP. When they were working on the ISKRA, Lenin and his comrades were able to draft the program for the Second Congress, you know, the program for the Communist Party of Russia, i.e. the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party at the time. There were some differences between Plekhanov and Lenin on this question, but things didn't come to a rupture. But Lenin was able to get 
something very important in that program. One was to get dictatorship of the proletariat included in the, in the, in the, in the program and the importance of party and the party that was to, 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 to lead it. Now, when the Second Congress took place, the program that was written mainly by Lenin, but also by uh, association, by other comrades who had been working on the ISCRA editorial board, went through very quickly. The deep differences had been sorted out. Nobody objected to the program. Not even the most avowed opportunists opposed the program. All the fight took place over what would be regarded by some people as a very minor question, namely the rules of party organization. And the fight started, well, they, they started as they meant to carry on, over paragraph one of the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so what was paragraph one? Paragraph one was on the question of who could become a member of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. There were two formulations one formulated by Lenin and the other one by Marto. Lenin's formulation was anyone could be a member of the RSDLP provided he satisfied three conditions. One, he accepted the program of the party. Secondly, he made financial, gave financial assistance to the party. You know, I, there's no communist party which doesn't ask you to give some money for becoming a member. There's no free ride in our party. We demand money. Because if the working class wants its liberation, it's got to finance that liberation. It cannot be done by the heads of Tesco, Sainsbury, you know, Google, and any organization that, that, that you, 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 can, you, can, you can think of. It will not be done through Facebook. It will be done by our members, and our members must finance their liberation. As Lenin used to say, a working class newspaper must be funded by the workers. If the working, a working class that cannot finance its own newspaper does not deserve to be liberated, it deserves to continue to be, to be, a, to be a slave, slave class. And the, and the, and the third um, um, requirement for being a member was that you must belong to one of the party organizations. Whereas Martov's formulation was, yes, you had to accept the program. Yes, you had to give some financial assistance. But the third one was missing. Anybody who sympathized with the party, anybody who worked under the direction of the party, anybody who took part in a strike or a demonstration could become a member. In other words, the membership was very loose. You could basically self-enroll yourself. You didn't actually have to be admitted into the party. You could enroll yourself. You were a striker. A lot of people were strikers. You didn't have to be a communist to be a striker. In fact, most strikers are not co communists, and they can't all become members, members of the party. And Lenin's idea was that you cannot, you cannot dilute the membership of the party by saying anybody can join it, because that actually obliterates the distinction between the class and the party. The party is the party of the working class, but it's not the whole of the working class. And as Lenin pointed out, even in his day and in our times, the entire working class doesn't even belong to the trade unions. 
which are more easily understood by the workers, which are more easily compreh comp comprehensible to them. And, but in any case, we do not want just anybody. We want people who are able to give the necessary commitment, who are able to actually accept the program. And we don't actually ask people to have mastered the program, because if we question a lot of people about our program, they may not be able to answer the questions, but at least they have accepted that they will try to carry out the program of the party and they will not go against it. And they will find out when they go against the program, because we'll be able to tell them we have our own very peculiar ways of telling people that this is not right and we shall not allow freelancers to, to carry on. People do not come in, into our party to wreck our party by all kinds of funny ideas. There is a program. It's a program for proletarian revolution. And the assistance you give us, the money you give us, is for carrying out that program. And thirdly, you must become, belong to a party organization. And you have to be admitted into it. People have to vet you. That's why we have the status, in most cases, of candidate membership. We test people over a period of time whether they actually are ser serious about joining, joining the party. And there was a lot of struggle at the, uh, 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 at, at, during the second Congress of the, of the party. As a result of, as, as a result of um, certain unstable uh, members of the ISKRA organization who defected to the other side, Mato's formulation was adopted by the Congress, not, not Lenin's. And as Lenin put, put that, the pot had been broken by that, by that opportunism. Opportunism doesn't come in matters of theory alone. Opportunism also comes in matters of organization. And it's just as dangerous to be an opportunist in matters of organization as it is to be an opportunist in matters of theory. People can put forward all the theory, but if they try to wreck the party organization, they are not working for revolution. And it is the <laughs> and it's the duty of the party to make sure that this does not, does not take place. So as a result um, of Marto's formulation, the pot had been broken. And Lenin said it had to be tied tight to keep it going as a pot. And of course, he said, yes, it was a difference. He could live with that difference. That would not necessarily lead to a split. But what leads to a split is people turning that difference into a point of principle and on the basis of it carrying on further and further on the road to opportunism, which finally leads to split between the revolutionaries and, and non-revolutionaries. Non and the rest of the, um, the, 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 the program, etc. Only, uh, uh, I mean, the rest of the rules only went through because at some stage, some opportunists left the Congress. And that gave Lenin's uh, side a majority of one over, the, <laughs> over a minority. And the majority from the Russian word Bolshevik, which means majority, came to be known as the Bolsheviks. And the minority came to be known as the Mensheviks. Now, that's the very important badge that they earned because very shortly after the Congress, the, Bolsh the Mensheviks became the majority, right? But they didn't become Bolsheviks, because the word Bolshevik became very much with the trend that was brought into existence by Iskra. 
and they continue to be Bolsheviks. So even after the revolution, when Lenin said, you know, we called Bolsheviks, and he said, such an ugly word could not be the name of the party. That's his words, not mine. But he said that we Bolsheviks have earned so much hatred and have called upon ourselves so much repression. It's become an honorable name. And even I, I would be prepared, he said, to compromise and call it properly by, the by its name, the Communist Party of the Russian Socialist uh, Russian Federation. Brackets, Bolsheviks, close Bolsheviks. And that's the name that you find in, on the title of the history of the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, Union Bo Bo Bolsheviks. So because of the opportunists leaving, I mean, they were basically, there were some delegates from an organization called the Bund, which was a union of, um, of, of, of people who professed to be Marxists from Jewish background, of mainly of Lithuania, but also some uh, Russia and, and Baltic, Baltic states. And they wanted to be, it to be accepted in the party that the Bund would rep solely be the representative of the Jewish workers. Now, no party worth its name could accept that because it would be dividing the working class on the basis of nationality or religion or whatever the case may be. A party is formed on a territorial basis, and it doesn't matter what your religion is, what your national background is, whatever it is, you, you belong to that party. We have had that argument within our own party. We wanted to admit certain members who live in Northern Ireland, and some comrades opposed that, no, we are in favor of Northern Ireland joining the Republic, and we don't want to undermine that by enrolling members from there. So I said, well, Lenin enrolled members in the Russian Empire. You know, people came from Georgia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, you know, Belarus, Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan. Why, why, why would we not do that? I said, can you just imagine the Bolshevik party that refused to admit Stalin? <laughs> because he came from Georgia. We're not refusing to admit anybody. We stand for, the, for a united Ireland. We stand for the six counties to be taken and into the Republic of Ireland. We want to see a united Ireland. That is our position. But until such time as that is accomplished, we are not going to disenfranchise our working class comrades in the six counties and prevent them from becoming members of our organization. That, that would simply mean we would deserted them and left them to be enrolled by the Labour Party, by the Trotskyites, by the revisionists and everybody else. No, we have a duty to make sure that those who are revolutionary are in our party and not in any, any other party. And there may be very few. You know, we don't have many members in Northern Ireland. We don't have many members anywhere, right? But the thing is, our basis is territorial it is not a national or a religious, religious basis. So when the opportunists le le left, Lenin's um, uh, side uh, uh, gained the majority. Now, just as 
Lenin, what is to be done? And the Iskra before that laid the ideological foundation of the party. The second Congress, by victory of Lenin's side, by and large, apart from uh, the third condition for, for membership, sealed the victory of the revolutionary side and it became the organizational basis for the subsequent development of the communist movement. That was the basis of the Bolshevik party subsequently. These two factions, Menshevik and Bolshevik, continued to exist nominally within a single party right up to 1912. It's only in 1912 that the Bolsheviks constitute themselves as a separate party. Before that, they continued to hold congresses. All kinds of struggles went on. Sometimes some congresses were boycotted by one section or the other. But in the end, finally, they could not continue to live within the same organization. And, and they split up, up, up into, in, 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 into two. But what Lenin is constantly trying to um, impress here is that the working class needs the party if it is to actually advance towards socialism. The tragedy of, 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 of after the Second Congress was that at the Second Congress, apart from the rules, another very controversial topic was the election to the party's institutions. The two most important institutions being the Central Committee of the party and secondly, the editorial board of its newspaper, i.e. the ISKRA. Now, when the composition of the editorial board of ISKRA was being determined, on Lenin's proposal, three people were elected to it. Lenin, Bartow, and Plekhanov. Now, Martov wanted, although he was in a minority, to have the majority on the editorial board. Lenin said, nowhere in the world is there a party that would automatically and by itself turn itself into a minority. When you go to a party congress, you're fighting for influence. You're trying to institutionalize that influence. In the era of circles, when there was no party, the only influence that could actually be there was the ideological influence, the spiritual influence, if you, if you like. But once you form a party, that spiritual influence has got to be supplemented and cemented by the material influence of an organization, you know, which is able to discipline people, which is able to organize uh, a hierarchy where lower bodies, bodies obey higher bodies, where the minority obeys the majority. You can't have an organization, anarchist style, where you make a decision and you say, well, we're going to do a demonstration tomorrow. And a few elements say, no, no, we're, we're going to do our own, own, own thing, you know. Or you're going into battle and some people say, no, we're not fighting today. Friday is not, <laughs> Friday is not the way, the, the, day, the, the day we, we fight, etc. Now, this anarchistic style cannot bring any victory, victory to the working class. So, as soon as the editorial board's constitution was announced, Martov declared that he will not serve on the uh, editorial board. Basically, he went into a, into a boycott. The same thing happened with the Central Committee. He was in a minority. 
but he wanted his people to be there so that he could be in a majority. Well, that was not accepted. The Second Congress ended, but the tragedy after the Second Congress was that Plekhanov deserted to the side of Mato. And basically, his idea was to kill with kindness. And you can see where it leads to disastrous results. You cannot be kind in the matter of fighting for the proletariat. You either it's the proletariat or kindness to your friends. Now, there are a lot of people who would have personally experienced that, that, that sort of situation. But when it comes to making a choice between the interests of the proletariat and keeping your friendships, I hope you will be able to come down on the side of protecting the interests of the proletariat. And Plekhanov said he could not bear to part company with old comrades. He'd rather be shot than get rid of old, old, old comrades. Well, Lenin was very friendly with Mato. He'd worked with him for a long time. But Lenin was not sentimental. If it came to protecting the interests of the party, he was prepared to say goodbye. And he said goodbye to... But Mato was nothing compared with Plekhanov. Lenin had to say goodbye to Plekhanov as, as, as well. And Plekhanov was the founder of Russian Marxism. He was is a very important figure. And although he went off the rails, um, he has, as in, and I use Lenin's words, he's written wonderful stuff on, 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 the, on, the, on, the, on the teachings of Marxism. As Lenin said, than anything ever published anywhere else. And any one of you who can lay hands on the collected works, philosophical works of Plekhanov, there are five volumes, try to get it. They're worth paying whatever you are asked to pay for them. You might even be able to get it for nothing, because such is the passion for reading Marxist literature in this country. So it might be, somebody might be happy to say, come and collect them, you know, so look, good luck to you. But I would be prepared to pay a lot, because every single page in those is, 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 is worth reading. And so he deserted, and then the dispute went on among the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. And with the defection of Plekhanov, the editorial board obviously came in the hands of the Mensheviks. And from number 53 onwards, Iskra was no longer Iskra. It became new Iskra because it propagated opportunist views on matters of organization to begin with, and subsequently on everything concerning the revolution. It became an opportunist paper. And Lenin had to start a new paper, but Freud. Um, but, no, 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 no. Pravda is much later. Pravda did not get formed till 1912. Pravda, it means forward in Russian. The period. The period. Well, anyway, they know the spellings and pronunciation. I, I, I don't know. I don't know Russian, but I just read that. V P R O Y D. Okay. I only communicate in written words. I don't. I don't communicate verbally. So they start, you know, and they struggle, 
And the longer the time went, um, the more New Iskra became vicious towards Lenin and his alcoholic faction, because that's what it was at, at that time. And in order to expose the opportunism that had guided um, Mato and his followers at the Second Congress, <coughs> Lenin wrote his famous book, One Step Forward, Two Steps Back. I'd like all of you to read this, but there's a health warning. It's a more difficult work to read than what is to be done. It's much more difficult because it actually uses the actual minutes of the Second Party Congress to actually delineate what happened at the con Congress and what the groupings at the Congress were. And Lenin, by looking at the voting record and even drawing a little di di diagram, says, well, you could almost say before the vote took place which side would vote where because the opportunists were group grouping together. They were grouping together with, before, the, before the Bundes left with the Bundes and, and of course, the unstable elements in the Iskra, including, including uh, Mato. So it's a book written to explain it, but it has some very, very important conclusions. And it's a book that laid the foundations, uh, the organizational foundations of the Bolshevik party. In fact, you can say that Lenin's What is to be done laid the ideological foundations for any communist party anywhere in the world. And one step forward laid the organizational foundations of any party, communist party, anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. And Lenin makes a number of points in this, this pamphlet. It's about 200 pages. He says, you know, the party is a part and a detachment of the working class. But it's only one of the detachments of the working class. The working class has many detachments. Not everybody is any, in every one of those detachments, but certainly not everyone in the working class in the party of the proletariat. Because the party of proletariat has a higher standard. It's not that it's for the elitist factions, you know, that you can only come to it if you're wearing a three-piece three suit and you look nice or something like that. It, it, it is because, because they are the people who actually are possessed of revolutionary theory. People who are dedicated to the work. People who are disciplined enough to work under the discipline of the organization. People who will carry out the decision, decisions of the party. Decisions which are binding on everyone, higher and lower. Binding not only on the multitude, but also on the chosen, cho chosen few. I mean, that's really the basic, basic uh, and central theme of the... It's a, it's a book that actually emphasizes the importance of centralism as opposed to diffuseness and amorphousness. Diffuseness and amorphousness, not in matters of theory, but in matters of organization. It's a book which actually has laid the foundation for what we call subsequently de democratic centralism. There's democracy in the sense that decisions are taken after a free and unhindered discussion in, within the party. But once those decisions are taken, they're binding as much on those who did not agree with those decisions as they are on those who would agree. No party can... <laughs> no party can function on the basis, I didn't agree with the decision. 
Forget about the Communist Party. Even the Conservative Party does not allow that. You know, I mean, they have, they have their own... I know, looking at the present Conservative Party, <laughs> you, you, might, might, you might think it doesn't. But of course, that's a sign of disintegration. It only proves, proves Lenin's point, which is our point as well. It's only when disintegration sets in that everybody goes, goes in their own way. Everybody is a leader. Everybody is a, is a general. There's nobody who's a soldier left, left, left to fight. I mean, Ella was showing me a joke. Um, it's not a joke, actual story. Somebody wrote a letter to the, to the Times saying, my son has seen off two, t- t- no, t- three prime ministers, two prime ministers, three home secretaries, three finance ministers, etc., and he's four months old. <laughs> you know, but it's but 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 it's a sign of disintegration. People people, people will go 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 their go their own own way, and so, you know, Lenin says, you know, we are and, and it's a quotation from him. We are the party of a class, and therefore almost the entire class. And in times of war, in period of civil war, the entire class should act under the leadership of our party, should adhere to our party as closely as possible. But it would be smug complacency. I'm not using the Russian word because people criticize my pronunciation. And I will say this, chavostism, i.e. following at the tail end, to think that at any time under capitalism, the entire class or the almost the entire class would be able to rise to the level of consciousness and activity of its vanguard, of its social democratic party. No sensible social democrat, know the difference between the old term and the new, has ever yet doubted that under capitalism, even the trade union organizations, which are more primitive and more comprehensible to the undeveloped strata. Can you just imagine among some comrades using the word primitive in regard to trade unions, you'd be hit on the head with a chair, wouldn't you? How can you declare trade unions to be primitive, right? Uh, which, which, are, which are more, more, more primitive. Um, are they, even they are unable to embrace the entire or almost the entire working class. To forget the distinction between vanguard and the whole of the mass, which gravitates towards it, to forget the constant duty of the vanguard to raise ever wider strata to this most advanced level means merely to deceive oneself, to shut one's eyes to the immensity of our tasks and to narrow down these tasks. Well, it doesn't mean that the theory somehow just becomes the monopoly of the chosen few. It is our endeavor not to degrade communist politics to the level of trade unionist politics, but to raise the trade unionist politics to the level of communist politics. We must go among the workers. Yes, we go into the trade unions and every other organization that is connected with the working class, and sometimes not even connected with the working class, and raise people's consciousness to a a communist um, consciousness. That is our job. Not to actually degrade, not to undermine, not to lower theoretical standards, but to raise the strata who don't understand to, to the higher level. But just because, as Allah has rightly pointed out, 
theory of socialism is brought to the working class from outside. But that does not mean that workers cannot contribute to the development of that theory. But when they do, they do it having acquired sufficient knowledge as theoreticians and as scientists, social scientists or any other, 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 other scientists. And Lenin mentions two names, Weitling and Proudhon. Yes, their theories may be wrong, but the, nobody can doubt that they were theor theoreticians of, of socialism. Wrong, but theoreticians all, all, all the same. They came from working class backgrounds, but they made their contribution in, in, to, to the development of, of theory, and sometimes the distortion of that theory, but they didn't do that just as workers, they did it as, as theoreticians. And Lenin's idea of a, of a party is, when I, when I say, wrote Lenin, that the party should be a sum of organizations, I hereby express clearly and precisely my wish, my demand, that the party as the vanguard of the class should be as organized as possible, that the party should admit to its ranks only such elements as lend themselves to at least a minimum of organization. And he goes on to say, Marto's formulation ostensibly defends the interests of the broad strata of the proletariat, but in fact it serves the interests of the bourgeois intellectuals who fight shy of proletarian discipline and organization. No one will undertake to deny that it is precisely its individualism and incapacity for discipline and organization that in general disting distinguishes the intelligentsia as a separate stratum of modern society. You know, and if the intelligentsia, which doesn't include everybody, of course, Marx and Engels belong to intelligentsia, as did Lenin. And Stalin didn't come from a privileged background. He was a worker theoretician who ro rose to the level of becoming one of not only great revolutionaries, generally speaking, but also in, in the matters of theory. Anybody who reads him, especially the last sections of his reports to party congresses, they usually are concerned with matters of theory. Uh, and they're just worth reading, even if you don't read the whole report, they're worth reading by, the, by the, the, themselves. He has tremendous contribution to make, but he does that as a social theoretician. But the working class has to accept the fact that it's only through having an organization that it can achieve liberation. But the intelligentsia, generally speaking, are not easily amenable to discipline. You can't criticize them. You get hit on the head. Or at the very least, they boycott you. They will never speak to you. If you're sitting in the pub, and that's your misfortune to sit in the pub, right? If you're sitting in the pub, they'll go to a table far away from you because they do not wish to be associated with you because you actually disagreed with them. You raised objections. They just want every nonsense that they put forward to be accepted as, as holy. And that comes from the fact that the intelligentsia work in a milieu which actually is not amenable to that kind of discipline. The workers are trained by the very existence as factory workers or factory workers in an office where capital is able to instill discipline on them. Capitalism has two sides. Exploitative side, which is the horrible, dirty side it does, but it also has a progressive revolutionary side. It actually disciplines workers. It teaches them 
the methods of organizing together. It teaches them the necessity of bending together. A worker by himself alone in a working class organization is nothing. But an intellectual by himself in a department of sociology is everything. He's God, right? <laughs> so he's not liable to accept any discip discip discipline from you. That is the very basis of his existence. Anything he achieves is by his personal qualities. Or, at the very least, his ability to do down his colleagues. Because you only progress to the extent you're able to downgrade your colleagues. Right. And I learned that as somebody who taught, taught at the university. If you're sitting in a pub with people, you don't easily leave the table. The moment you're gone, they're talking behind you. <laughs> and that actually made me discover why the English have such strong bladders. <laughs> no, nobody ever goes because they don't want to talk, talk down behind their, behind, behind their back. So they're not amenable to discipline. And as Lenin says, the proletariat is not afraid of organization and discipline. It will do nothing to have the worthy professors and high school, high school students who do not want to join an organization recognized as party members merely because they work under the control of an organization. It's not the proletariat, but certain intellectuals in our party who lack self-training in the spirit of organization and, and discipline. And Len then goes on to say, you know, the party is not just any organization. It's not just a detachment of the working class. It's not just a hard detachment of the working class. It is the highest detachment of the working class. It is really some, something to be aspired to if you are a revolutionary. And the worst thing that can happen to a person is to be deprived of the badge of honor of being in the Communist Party. Now, I could give you examples from a religious movement in, in India. I'm not ask, asking you to be converted to Sikhism. <laughs> there is a scene where the last guru of the Sikhs is known as Gobind Singh. He was fighting his battle against the Mughal emperor Aurangzeb. He lost it, you know. His forces were defeated. And before the last battle, <clears throat> there were 40 of his followers from the Amritsar district who said, we're tired of fighting with you. You never pay us. <laughs> you get, uh, get us involved in fight after fight, and we won't go. And, and when they went, went, went home and told their wives, who were a bit in the fashion of Dolores Ibaruri, and the wife said, you will from now on wear our dresses and clothes. We'll go and fight with God. <laughs> <laughs> and shamed by their wives, they went into that bad, 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 bad battle. And they died at a place which I come from. And as they're dying, Gobind Singh comes. You know, they're bloodied and they're wiping their face. 
and he asked them what is their last wish. And they said, the letter we wrote to you that we won't fight for you, tear it up. Now, a dying member of a communist party, if for some reason he's been deprived of the membership, would be saying, I want my membership restored. is the last wish she would have because it's the best honor, badge of honor that a person can wear and to be deprived of that is as far as the communists are concerned is a misfortune not like, like, likely to be undertaken. Lenin goes on to make the same point, saying, formerly, a party was not a formally organized whole, but only the sum total of separate groups, and therefore no other relations except those of ideological influence were possible between these groups. Now we have become an organized party, and this implies the establishment of authority, the transformation of the power of ideas into the power of authority, the subordination of the lower bodies to, to the higher bodies. And those who opposed it, Lenin described them as aristocratic anarchists who would not accept any discipline. And his words are better than, than mine. The aristocratic anarchism is particularly characteristic of the Russian nihilist. He thinks of the party organization as a monstrous factory. He regards the subordination of the part to the whole and of the minority to the majority is serfdom. Division of labor under the direction of the center evokes from him a tragic comical outcry against people being transformed into wheels and cogs. To turn editors and contributors being considered a particularly atrocious species of such transformation. <laughs> Mention of the organizational rules of the party calls forth a contemptuous grimace and a disdainful remark that one could very well dispense with such rules. Now, we've heard that. You know, we don't want anything as disdainful as uh, democratic centralism. We, we, we don't want to be bound by that because you are just simply restricting the freedom of comrades to go and expand the party. Well, we are not expanding the party by actually not working in a disciplined manner by not working according to, to democratic centralism, you're trying to destroy the party, you're trying to liquidate the party. You don't like the badge of liquidator? Well, stop being a liquidator. Well, if you carry on with the liquidationist activity, the party not only has the right, it has the duty to characterize you as a liquidationist and to wage a vigorous struggle against you. In which case, you either correct your position or you're heading for the ex exit. There is no other, other way. <laughs> the complete absence, says Lennon, of sensible arguments on the part of Martov and company against the editorial board appointed by the Congress <clears throat> is best of all shown by their 
catchword, we're not serfs. The mentality of the bourgeois intellectual who regards himself as one of the chosen few standing above mass organization and mass discipline is expressed here with remarkable clarity. It seemed to the individualism of the intelligentsia that all proletarian organization and discipline is serfdom. And as Lenin goes on to say, as we proceed with the building of a real party, the class conscious worker must learn to distinguish the mentality of the soldier of the proletarian army from the mentality of bourgeois intellectual who makes a display of anarchist phraseology. He must learn to demand that the duties of party member be fulfilled not only by rank and filers, but also by the people at the very top as, as well. There, there is no doubt we have known from our own experience certain people in the past have rendered services to the party. But this is not forever. If they no longer render services, but more than that, try to undo the work of the party, then the party has a duty not to actually let them carry on just because they rendered services in the past. Lenin deals with, uh, Stalin deals with this question in one of his uh, party congress speeches. That these are people who become arrogant. They think nobody can touch them because they have rendered services to the party in the, in the past. We must bring them a notch or two to make them understand that this is not, not so. And if they don't correct themselves, they obviously are head, heading, heading, heading for the exit. And our party, small though it is, it does not shy away from taking important drastic steps. They are hard, they are difficult, they are not decisions taken lightly. But we will take those, those decisions because we're trying to build a party that is worthy of the name communist. The, the banner of communism must not be besmirched. It must not be soiled. It must not be dirtied by people who want to liquidate the party. That is our position. And Lenin sums up all the arguments that is put, put in this 200-page this, um, pamphlet by the following never-to-be-forgotten words. In its struggle for power, the proletariat has no other weapon but organization. Disunited by the rule of anarchic competition in the bourgeois world, ground down by forced labor for capital, constantly thrust back to the lower depths of utter destitution, savagery, and degeneration, the proletariat can become, and inevitably will become, an invincible force only when its ideological unification by the principles of Marxism is consolidated by the material, material unity of an organization, which will weld millions of toilers into an army of the working class. Neither the decrepit rule, not to be confused with our comrade here, neither the, <laughs> neither the decrepit rule of Russian Tsardom, nor the senile rule of international capital will be able to withstand this army. And so you can see why this book became the 
the, the, the organizational foundation of the, of the, of the Bolshevik party and of every other communist party. Uh, but that quotation, I end my contribution. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.